Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Ginny Povell had a successful career as an insurance industry executive in America before she bought a flower farm called Protea Heights in South Africa that changed her life. Now the owner of a five-hectare vineyard and an award-winning wine brand, she's done things the hard way. Listen to us chat about kite surfing, old vine Chenin Blanc, vegan compost, the terroir of the Devon Valley, and why painting and drawing are the best forms of relaxation. Hello, Ginny. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Good, uh, good evening. <laughs> good evening. Good evening for you. Yeah, well, forgetting yeah. for both of us. You've had quite a week, haven't you? I did. I, um, you know, I overthink a lot of things, and this week I was canning wine for the first week. At first time ever. So, um, and I had all sorts of construction workers here and they're installing a new solar plant and all, all, all happening at the same time. So, yeah. And yeah, now you've got to do a podcast with me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't even had a glass of wine yet tonight. So, yeah. <laughs> good. That's good to hear. Listen, I mean, as people can hear from your accent, which you haven't lost, you grew up in the States, Boston, I think, in a, in a working class family. It just was wine part of your life as a kid? Never. My, um, even tonight when I spoke to my 97 year old dad, he was, um, you know, he's always concerned that I'm like drinking too much. If you have one glass of wine, you're drinking too much. So no, there wasn't, wasn't any wine in my house. And, um, yeah, they weren't foodies either. Just basic food. My mom wasn't a very good cook. So yeah. Boring kind of. So no early inspiration basically. No, not until I, um, my first love uh, was a musician and he ended up working in restaurants to support himself. And so he turned out to be a master chef. And that's really, that was the beginning of my world of food and wine. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. You left school at 16. Uh, you went to a junior college to learn secretarial skills, which I'm sure have been very useful. But your real passion was, was art, wasn't it? Um, and did you think about going to university or art school? Art school, I definitely wanted to go. Um, mm. But my mom and my dad both were very, you know, yeah, you have to have a job. You have to make money. And uh, you can't make money in art. So that just kind of fell by the wayside. And I decided to tr figure out a way to get out of the house, and I uh, found a junior college that would um, accept me in, as a freshman without finishing high school. Hmm. So I had to convince the principal of the high school to allow me to go to college. And he said, well, yeah, sure, as long as we, we can take your freshman English as your senior English, and uh, then you can graduate. So that's what I did. And you did? How long did that take? I only stayed at, uh, in school for two years and then I, I wasn't really applying myself. I was just partying and yeah, <laughs> so I, I got a, uh, yeah, I got a job as a secretary. First job was at a GTE Sylvania in the Minuteman missile system, manufacturing Minuteman missile, the systems, the big cabinets that went underground and, um, yeah. 
that was the start of it. And then I, then I fell into a job in insurance and that's when I really realized I could, I could apply myself and go somewhere. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's what I did. Worked hard. And you were incredibly successful. You know, you ended up as COO, yeah, uh, overseeing, yeah. what, 40 consultants in a business with revenues of 16 million quid. D- did you enjoy that world? I did. $16 million, I mean, I, I mean, not I mean, quid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I worked really hard, and it was. It, I think it was also the time. It was just the time of that era that you could – I didn't have a college degree, and – you could just apply yourself and do well. And then I realized <clears throat> that I wasn't really getting paid the same as the guys that I was working with. So then I tried to um, move into sales, you know, consulting so that you were billable hours. And as long as you kept generating revenue, they had to pay you. They couldn't ignore it. So that's kind of how I worked around it. And then, um, yeah, then I took a job with this consulting practice in uh, New York City, and um, I was lucky enough to, I'm sorry, Tim, my cat. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of the organization when um, he decided to sell, and we didn't have non-competes, so the company that bought us kind of had to give us an earn-out deal, and that's kind of how I came up with the money to buy a farm in Africa. I mean, tell us about that in a minute. I just wonder what that period of your life t- taught you in a sense that's been useful. Uh, teamwork, um, you know, trust, being, you know, being true to your word. If you promise somebody something, you, you have to make good on it. Kind of old fashioned mm-hmm. concepts that I don't think exist the same way now. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> back then, you know, it was handshakes. and But it was also... The people could rely on you if you told them they were going to do something. You would, yeah, do it. And and being a good problem solver, you know, not being afraid of the unknown. Because most of the time, I was thrown into things that I had no clue on how to to sort out, or come up with some plans so that you could convince a company to pay you money to work with them. You know, you had to be creative about all those things. So, um, I don't know. I was, must have been good at it. <laughs> I, I think you're being very modest. You're obviously very good at it. But I mean, t- tell us about your exposure to fine wine because that came through a, a boyfriend, didn't it? I think uh, yeah. he was, he was what, a professional sailor? Sailor, yes. And, Sounds uh, glamorous. Wow, man. I think that was the attraction. You know, he was on these really big yachts and, um, you know, a lot of very wealthy clients and he, um, was a very good sailor and he helped them win races. So yeah, that, that was kind of my exposure to, because I think up until that point I was just drinking Beck's beer. I wasn't drinking <laughs> fine wine at all. And, um, he had one, uh, I remember one client in particular, he was a veterinarian and he had this amazing townhouse in Manhattan on the uh, the Upper East Side. And um, <laughs> he had this incredible selection of Bordeaux. So that was really my first exposure there. And then um, another one of his clients was into Barolos and Brunellos. And so 
you know, they were all really big wines though. I didn't, I, mm. I don't think I was really fell into Burgundy or Pinot Noir for mm. a long time after that. And these were on the boat, were they? You were having them on the boat, right? No, we would go to the yacht club because, yeah. you know, they ca- would have their own personal mm. um, locker with mm. their wines, you know, and you could drink a dark and stormy or, yeah, you could go and drink some fine Bordeaux. So that's, you know, I'd rather drink the wine than the dark and stormy. So, um, and Was there a eureka moment? Were any wine you remember? You thought, oh, shit, I didn't know wine could taste that good. They were 1980s, early 80s Bordeaux. I don't, I don't think at that point I, I was really recognizing um, names. I don't think it really got to. I think I did a vertical tasting at a um, at one event. Someone had brought some um, Italian. Um, ugh, I should have. I should have actually done better on my memory because you gave me the, the, the gave me some idea of what we were talking about, but um, no, I can't remember the name. Bordeaux, anyway, that kind of thing, really. Bordeaux, yeah, and you had Bordeaux your own. Was really, what I was fixated yeah. on for a long yeah. time. And you know, you had your own expense account too, so you were drinking good stuff. And as you said, the account consulting company you worked for was sold. Yeah, and did that free you up financially with the amount of money it gave you? We don't have to tell us how much they gave you, but did you suddenly think, hey, I can do something with this? Yeah, for sure. And and that's really, you know, it, I, and I was stuck there for four years. I had to stay there four years in order to get the the the, the earn out. Mm. So in that four years, I had time to think about what I really wanted to do. And it was to have a farm. It was just to get away from New York, have nothing to do with people and just have a farm and have vineyards. In my mind, it was going to be vineyards. And um at no point did I think I was making wine, ever, ever. You were going to sell the grapes, were you? You're going to sell the yeah, grapes, right? Gonna be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to have you know the finest grapes, and yes, being making lots of money from being a farmer. Ha ha. That was such a <laughs> little. Did you know? And, <laughs> and you started you started studying viticulture a bit, didn't you? Did a few courses at UC Davis. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Um, UC Davis is pretty cool because they would have back-to-back weekend courses. So you, one weekend it was a two-part series, you know, back-to-back weekends. Not thinking that people would actually fly out there for the week, um, but that's what I was doing. And they had a three um, three week. They still do. They still have all these courses. They're amazing and um, really great teachers. And they'd pull people in from industry. And so you're not getting just a theoretical, you're getting some more practical perspective. Mm. Um, I think the marketing three week marketing course was really worth it. Mm. It really made me think about how would you sell wine? You know, how, and again, how little did I know Mm. how difficult it is to sell wine? But um, yeah, (laughs) but. um, And where did you think of buying a farm? Where did you look at? Believe it or not, I actually looked in Argentina because I fell in love with Argentina on one of our trips. And I thought, but, you know, Spanish and I just didn't see myself fitting into the culture there at all. You know, I just couldn't envision it. But I love the country. I love the people there. I love the beauty. It's just an amazing place. Um, Santa Barbara, 
you know, a little bit. I looked a bit there, but again, it's too, it was too expensive. This was back in, you know, before the financial crisis where <clears throat> real estate prices were crazy. Hmm. And uh, yeah, there was no way I could for, afford like a, you know, a premium property, hmm. maybe an acre or two. <laughs> but it but it was definitely grapes you were thinking of growing. It wasn't, yeah, you know, yeah, strawberries definitely. or avocados or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was grapes. Yeah. So were those courses at UC Davis, were they useful? I mean, in terms of what you, you've subsequently done, I mean, do you look back at that and say, hey, I really learned something on that course? Yes and no. I think it, 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 applying it here in South Africa, hmm. it didn't really, you know, all the information I learned about rootstock was worthless here. Hmm. You know, there hmm. isn't even close to the amount of different rootstocks here and clones. <clears throat> it's just different. Soils are different. Weather's different. I mean, there's similarities, but but it was a good it was a good starting point. Hmm. Um, and, and and what took you to South Africa for the first time? I think it was 2005. You first went there, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was a kite surfing. You know, all of the vacations I took with my my uh, partner were always sports related, sailing, bicycling. You know, we had we had to have an activity, so we, you know, it was kite surfing when we came here. But at that point, um, I wasn't really into kite surfing. Windsurfing was kind of going like not as popular. And so when we got here, I, I realized it was just really, I'm not going to windsurf. So he was just kite surfing the whole time. And uh, I went off and explored the Winelands. <laughs> so I was like, oh my God, it's close to the ocean and there's vineyards and it's most beautiful place in I just felt the energy here. It was changing, you know, it was, it felt, mm. felt like this is a place to be. Um, yeah, I had a, a whole lot of positive energy then. I mean, did you know much about the place before you went there? Uh, I kept coming back on vacation and I realized this is really ridiculous. I'm, I have to come here for, you know, three months. So I decided to, to see if I could find it someone that would allow me to do harvest hmm. and yeah you know and i was like shit who's going to do that because i'm 50 50 hmm. <laughs> at the time hmm. and who's gonna you know i'm not going to be able to to do the same kind of grunt work hmm. but maybe hmm. someone will take me in so uh, i just randomly sent emails out and never mentioned my age and um neil morehouse from Zorgfleet said, sure, show up on the 21st of Jan and we'll find something for you to do. <laughs> so you and did. Was, I did, <laughs> did. yeah. And so you learned so, a lot from him, didn't you? I did. You know, he's a very different, um, yeah, different than a lot of the other winemakers that I've had exposure mm. to now. Mm. Um, and I'm probably lucky that it was him because he was really super encouraging He's a very positive person. If you screw something up, it's never a mistake. It's a learning experience. And he was telling me how you would <clears throat> correct it or what to think about for the next time. And yeah, it was really positive. He could never say anything negative to anyone. That's the kind of person he is. So, so, you, so 2005, 2008, you'd come back and you finally did a vintage in 2008, stayed three months. How did you come to buy Protea Heights, which is where you are now? Lovely name, by the way. 
he uh well i i was like you know on the weekends when i when i would have a little bit of time i would just you know spend an hour or two with a real estate agent and they would show me these vineyards and they were i don't know i just wasn't inspired by anything that they were showing me and uh, towards the end i was thinking you know it's just not going to happen you know this is just a pipe dream <clears throat> and then he this guy that quite a character show says you know what i have an idea why don't we look at something that doesn't have any vineyards you know let's just see if you can find happiness in this farm because i think you're going to like it so we drove in here and as soon as we drove in i was just taken by the trees hmm. there were trees everywhere it was an arboretum you know it was just spectacular and the views and but the negative was that it had a guest house and in my wildest dreams, I would never want a hospitality venture. I am not, I'm not an extrovert. And yeah. So that was really the thing that kept me from saying yes on the spot. Mm -hmm. So um, anyways, he left me and I kind of stayed here and I drove around the farm and then I went down the end of the driveway and I sat in the car and I'm like, you know what, if I don't buy this farm, I'm never doing it. <laughs> so I phoned him up and I said, let's make an offer. And that's how quick it was. It was just instantaneous. Wow. So then by July 1, I owned it. That was April, mid-April. And by July 1, I owned it. It was that quick. Wow. So in yeah. so two and a half months, you were in, right? Yeah. With a and guest, then with a guest house and a flower farm, <laughs> right? But no vineyards. <laughs> <laughs> and... With a brand new farm manager, because the farm manager that was here was a raging alcoholic. So I had to find a new farm manager. So um, I was lucky enough that uh, Stefan, who owned the Zorg fleet, knew Francois, my farm manager, um, because he worked at Lormorans under uh, Rosa Kruger. Hmm. So I stole him from Rosa. So, Has she forgiven yeah. you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so how did you go about setting yourself up as a, as a wine producer? You know, you're in your early fifties. Yeah. Um, were you accepted immediately as, as an, as an American an American woman from outside? Um, I think so. I mean, I never knew of if, if anybody wasn't accepting me, I didn't, nobody mm. told me or I didn't get mm. the vibe. Mm. Everybody was really helpful here. Mm. Everyone. I, I think I, I can't imagine doing this in California. I mean, I, there's no way. I don't think that people would be as open, but, you know, I could be wrong. But um, I was an oddity on some level. Mm. But um, did, did you talk to Samantha O'Keefe, who was at Lisbon, another American? No, were you aware that she was in South Africa? Yes, I was aware. Because people tell you, oh, there's another American or there's Andrea, mm. you know. Mm. Three Americans, yeah, three American women, yeah. And actually, uh, Black Pearl, Mary, yeah, another American. So yeah, I mean, they, you know, you hear of everyone always tells you, "Oh, do you know so and so?" Because they're American, you're supposed to know them, but mm. it doesn't always. You don't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> 
and so you've got so you've got this beautiful property with lots of flowers on it and trees but no vineyards how do you decide which wine styles you wanted to make and where did you go about getting grapes from at the start um well francois by the way who knew nothing about horticulture only knew viticulture mm-hmm was also overwhelmed. And by the way, he didn't really speak English that well. So in the very beginning, there was always a period of where we would speak English and then the, then whoever was here would speak Afrikaans to bring him up to speed. That's how we started. And um, yeah, now his children are like their best subject in school is English. (laughs) (laughs) No, we hired Vinpro as the consultant to help us figure out, to do the soil analysis, to figure, you know, digging pits and figuring out what we should do where. In my mind, we were in Stellenbosch and we were gonna do Bordeaux Mm. varieties. If we were in Hemel and Arda, I'm sure I would be doing Pinot, which I wish I could have found a property in Hemel and Arda, but I didn't, but um, yeah. So I'm I'm doing Bordeaux because that's where we are. That's and in the in the meantime, while you waited for those grapes to obviously the, the vineyards to 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 bed in, as it were, you started buying grapes from other people, didn't you? What did you start out buying? Well, that was just the best thing that ever happened to me because it was really um, Johan Villeun, who was the Vinbro consultant, who used to work for the cooperative up in. Um, up by Hank Lang, up by Glen Williams. Citrus Dale Mountain, up there, up the West Coast, yeah. 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 And um, I, I just casually said to him, you know, it would be great if I could find some really unique old Shannon somewhere. And he said, oh, I know where it is. And he, we drove up there. And the drive up there, I was like, it's too hot here. What, where are we going? And then we drive up to the, up to Hank's farm and it looked like Utah to me, you know, rock formations, dry, you know, who would even figure out that they would want to have a farm here? It's just so barren and so far out of the way. And then, then there's all of these old bushfine vineyards and Hank couldn't understand what this American woman wanted with his grapes, because as far as he was concerned, it was just all garbage. He wanted to rip them all out. Did it was he? only, yes, he was ripping them out. That's actually why Johan brought me up there was to try to convince him to keep them and that someone would actually give him s- decent money for them. Hmm. So <laughs> that's how it started. I think the first, um, the first, I paid him 4,000 rand a ton for the first year just to, to see if you could make a decent wine. Mm-hmm. And so what happens? I get a five-star platter for the first wine, for the first freaking wine I'm even involved in and making <laughs> from Hank's grapes. So I went back and said, okay, Hank, I think I should give you more for the grapes because we've it's proven they're great. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, that's that that's been a whole interesting um yeah, journey of of uh Afrikan Afrikaner farmer culture for me, mm-hmm. for sure. Understanding it, really. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. it was very sad when he passed away. Was it last year or the year before? It was two years ago now, wasn't it? Hank two passed years away. Ago now, yeah. Almost mm. two years, yeah. And you were one of the last people to see him alive, weren't you? Oh, I would. I think it was two or three days earlier that we were there mm. harvesting. And then um, mm. it was just such a shock. Mm. But he was stressing that day that I saw him over um, is Roy Basti. And um, mm. one of the, he sells this tea to like a cooperative and they, you know, he sells organic tea and they had found residue of, um, of herbicides and he was completely freaked out because there's no way that he had herbicides on the farm. And <clears throat> anyways, he was accusing the cooperative of mixing his tea uh, with somebody else. Oh, and he was stressed out about that and had a heart attack. Very sad. Yeah. Well, I don't know what happened. His, his mm. wife, Serene, thinks it was the vaccine related because mm. he had issues yeah. with clotting after the vaccine. But yeah. yeah. I mean, but the wine lives on, doesn't it? You know, yes. that, that you made, which is the Mary Delaney collection, Chenin amazing wine. D just tell us a little bit about the different ranges you've got, because you've got Mary Delaney collection, you've got the big flower, and you've got flower girl. I mean, again, this link with, with flowers, obviously, and we'll talk a bit more about flowers because this was a flower farm, but also you still, you still grow flowers, don't you? So it's a big yes. part, it's a busy, busy business. Yeah? Yes. Tell us about the three ranges, what's in the ranges. Well, I started out with Mary Delaney, really thinking that it was always going to be the range of from grapes that I buy in, because I wanted to to separate what I was doing here on the farm, because I was farming, trying to farm organically and sustainably, and you know, no till, and um, yeah, the, to differentiate what I was doing, because it's you know, and how I pay my people and yeah, I don't know. Maybe that was a mistake, but so big flower range was born and that's all the Bordeaux <clears throat> varieties. And then there's flower girl, which is just the fact that I had um, d done some pet nuts and I um, grafted Albarino onto Cabernet and like, how am I going to put Albarino into this Bordeaux thing? So I just said, okay, you know what? Flower girl's experimental Maybe sometimes it'll be a once-off, like I do a vermouth. I may or may not continue that, but um, yeah, fun stuff. And, and the vermouth is made from what Viognier skins, isn't it, or yes. something crazy? Like that? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With teas, all sorts of delicious, you know, matcha tea, uh, green yeah. tea, rooibos tea, and grapefruit. Yeah. It's delish. And and how many different wines do you make now? Does it depend a bit on the vintage? I mean, you've got some stables, haven't you? Or, or you know. Um, yeah, staples, I would say not staples. Staples. I would say it's like uh, yeah. nine, nine wines. Nine, yeah. And and apart from your own vineyards, which are in Devon Valley, and tell us a bit more about that in a second. Where do you source the grapes from? You've got Hank's grapes, or what were Hank's grapes, now taken over by his family salons. Them. Right? That's it. That's that's literally Tim. What I've decided to do is I've stopped. I, you know, I've got this great farm. I'm making. I feel like I'm making good wine from it now. I understand it more and I'm and I think I want to focus my energy on on what I'm doing and then I'm taking in um Hanks um grapes and that's it. So So the pinot you're going to stop doing, are you? Pinot is going to become my pinot. So the 2022 okay. pinot that um I think you last tasted was 100% from the farm. And yeah. uh I'm going to keep it that way. 
because I think it tastes pretty good. So I don't think you have to have Hamelin Arda fruit necessarily to make good beer. Just tell us a little bit where you are. You are you are in Devon Valley. Just tell us where that sits within Stellenbosch and what makes it what makes it special. Uh, I think the the weather. I think it's special because of the weather. Because the the valley faces southeast, so the southeaster blows right down the valley, and so by three in the afternoon, three thirty, you've definitely got a breeze every day. So it cools everything down. You've got a nice diurnal um, shift between hot or day and night. Um, the soils here are perfect for Merlot, and I think other people have proven that. Um, you know, people that are buying in fruit. I know my I know um, Restenberg loves my Merlot. They buy a lot. And of the soils clay. are what clay based, are they? Clay, Is that why? Clay. Yeah. Yeah. Clay soils. And mm. um, some of them are more uh, sandstone. Mm. Some are decomposed granite. It's kind of eight different, which is hard to, for me to understand, but there's five or eight different soil types here on a 21 hectare farm, which is. Mm. One side of Devon Valley is granite, and the other side is more of the sandstone soils. So, and, and, and you've planted 21 hectares of vineyards, have you? No, no, no. I only have uh, five, five hectares yeah. of vineyards and yeah. um, eight hectares of flowers, and I have five yeah. hectares of trees. And the guest house, right? Garden and the guest house in the middle of all those trees. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the way where you farm. I mean, I I like your your description of the property as one one big garden, or you said of arboretum. I mean, you, you, it's interesting the way you farm because you have quite dense planting, don't you? In terms of the number of vines per hectares, you know, you leave beautiful cover crops. I mean, your vineyards look beautiful; they really do. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's. I approach it from a, maybe because I used to do a lot of gardening, you know, I, I used to find solace and just digging around in the soil and planting things. But, um, that's, I guess the way I approach it where my farm manager, you know, approaches, approached it in the beginning, more like a factory, you know, it felt more manufacturing or factory because it's large and you have to get stuff done. So, I think over the years he's appreciated my perspective on it and the cover crops and, you know, putting, building back, um, topsoil. That's one thing I've never really understood here is the, how old these soils are and there's not much of topsoil, which I'm, I think the Northern hemisphere is more used to top topsoil, a layer of, mm -hmm. of debris. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So that's kind of how that whole cover crop thing started with me. And then I started reading more and more about no-till and understanding, you know, hey, there's a whole lot going going on there. So it was my fixation on on building topsoil and, and all that, that created the no-till. And was no-till also because of climate change and just these, these warmer vintages we're getting, particularly that run of dry vintages, yeah? I think... Um, me realizing that we had to have debris and cover the soil and because it was so hot and, and a lot of the, um, the, the soil just never stays moist. And then experimenting with all sorts of different mulches. You know, I brought in a special mulching machine from Pennsylvania 
because you couldn't find anything here to do it. Because we used to have a sawmill down the end of the road. So we would buy all of the, their chips and then we'd put it into this machine and we'd drive it through and we'd dump all of the, these chips in the vine row. And um, yeah, so I was obsessed with keeping the soils covered and just trying to build back. And I did a lot of, we've done testing over the years about how much carbon we've added to the soil from doing all of this no-till. And it's very... Um, it's really only the blocks where we keep applying compost that we get the soil, um, to, to our carbon numbers to, to increase. They don't increase that dramatically. So, yeah. So you need cover crops and, and you need the mulching and you need the, yes, the, the, need all the manure, but it's got to feed. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't, um, I don't have manure here. Mm. We do, we have, we have vegan compost. We don't have vegan animals. compost. <laughs> I just wonder what what advice you'd give to somebody, you know, who's contemplating doing what you're doing. There may be people listening to this and saying, "Hey, I've got a bit of money. You know, I've just turned fifty. I quite fancy owning a wine farm." <laughs> what What do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Um, I wish I had a. You know, I think it's really hard to do. I wouldn't do it if you're uh, on your own. I think you need like a husband or a wife or a partner. It, you know, it's really hard doing it by yourself. <clears throat> I happen to be fortunate in that, um, you know, if I didn't have Francois, I don't actually know how I would have done it because he's just such a great guy and he views the property as his own property. Um, but if I had any other person, I think it would have, I would have given up, I think. Um well, you've got the cat, though, as we can hear. The cat's I, been- <laughs> I'm so sorry about this cat. <laughs> I'm throwing her outside, actually. I swear to God, she just must have known that, yeah, I'm not paying attention to her. That's what She's- cats do, I'm afraid, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, next question. I mean, South Africa, we, we both agree, is a wonderful place, and we both love it, the many things about it. It's got a whole heap of problems, right? Um, oh, yeah. You know, some of that's impacted on you a bit because you've had sort of camps near you, sort of these these informal settlements that have been set up. I, I just wonder, you know, what what would improve the conditions of the majority of its population? If you were Cyril Ramaphosa for a day, what would you do? How, how do how do we make South Africa better in a sense? Well, right off the top, I mean, the reason it's happening is because there's no jobs. You know, I mm. think the official unemployment rate is thirty two percent, but it's there's that it has to be 60% of the people not working here. But the, uh, what I would do is that I don't think there's a strong enough focus on the education system here. Mm. They only ma- mandatory to go to school until 10th grade mm. <clears throat> and they have to pay school fees and mm. they can get reimbursed if they go and stand in line somewhere, you know, if they show that they don't earn enough the, the whole system, it, it should, should be free to everyone. Mm. There should be more integration. Mm. I think the separation of the schools, the, of kids that speak Afrikaans and kids that speak English is wrong. I think they should come together and mm. go to school together. I think the schools are where they need to spend the effort. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. That I mean, all these things begin with education but and that takes yeah. time doesn't it you know you can't yeah. educate somebody in 10 minutes you know it's 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 10 15 20 years really of, of work yeah no, I agree. and more after school um options because you know every everyone relies upon the informal 
childcare system. I know from my housekeepers, you know, their kids go to school and then there has to be someone at home to take care of the kids. And that's usually a relative or an auntie or, you know, someone. Um, but it seems so simple to have another hour of after school sports or something. There's just not a lot of that here. Not what I remember is when when I went to school. That's all. No, no exactly. Uh, just tell us quickly about the guest house because it's a lovely place to stay. I mean, I've never stayed there, but I've 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 tasted there with you, and I've seen how beautiful it is. I mean, you didn't want to do a guest house, when, but you got the guest house. You've made a real success of it. I mean, have you ended up enjoying it? It's funny. I enjoyed it during COVID the most because there were less there's no guests. One there. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> But um, no, but I actually had to be the guest house manager because I had to let everyone go except the housekeepers. Mm. I kept mm. the housekeepers because without the housekeepers, you don't have a guest mm. house. Mm. So, um, so yeah, bit by bit, it, it started to come back. And yeah, I acted as the guest house manager mm. for, and that's when I really realized all the things we were doing wrong. Because up until that point, I just said, hired someone and said, here, you just deal with it. I don't want anything to do with it. I pay the bills and I'm just going to assume that you're going to run it properly. But, um, yeah, I just saw all the things that were wrong. And I think, I hope we're doing the right thing at this point. So, yeah. And and if people want to book to go there, but where do they go onto your website? Yeah. Well, Botanica wise, there's a link to Sugarbird Manor, but yeah, mm. sugarbirdmanor.co.za. There we go. Fantastic views. Amazing views. It's some oh, of the most beautiful views amazing. in the Cape. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and great art. You know, um, you have fantastic taste in art. You told us that, you know, you loved art as a, as a kid. And I think you paint now, don't you? Do you paint and sculpt a little bit in your spare time? I've been painting and drawing. I actually went to Sweden for two weeks and did a um, two-week, you know, charcoal and oil painting workshop. And um I'm going to do it again next summer, different place, but yeah, just to get away and do nothing except stuff for myself, not to try to sell wine or, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think your sensibility comes across your love of art in your labels, because if, if people, if they had, don't, haven't seen the labels, they're beautiful. All your labels are great. And oh, even thanks. the kind of um, the flower girl ranges, they're really fun and funky, aren't they? Yes. Are they your designs or are you just telling somebody else to no, do it? No, I, I actually, all the flower girl Labels come from uh, artists that I find on Instagram. Hmm. And when you contact them, they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, what would you? <laughs> I'd be honored if I could have your art on my label. And um, yeah, so that's how it usually goes. And you pay them in wine? No, I pay them real cash money, usually by <laughs> PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been fantastic talking to you. I think it's amazing what you've achieved, you know, and it's, it's, you make it sound as if it's all just kind of happened by accident, but um, there's an enormous amount of hard work behind this. I mean, I know, I know you well, and uh, I've enjoyed watching your journey and these incredible wines that you're making. Who would have guessed, really, don't you think, you know, looking back when you did that little viticulture course, UC Davis every weekend, you'd be where you are now. Actually, no. No, I, I can't even believe, actually, I've been here over 15 years now, and I can't believe that I've done it, actually, still. It's still like, pinch me. Am I really here? <laughs> so, well, yeah. You, you are, and, you, and you've made an enormous success of it, Jilly. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us on Cork Talk.
Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. What a truly inspiring story. It just shows that you're never too old to start growing grapes and making wine. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the highly entertaining German wine merchant, Hendrik Thomas from Wein am Limit. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.